We have to push ourselves to find out our gifts. If we don't push ourselves deep out of our comfort zones, we don't discover some of the gifts that can help us to have the most meaningful impact on the world. And that for me was the ability to influence in front of groups of people. I always felt like I was here for some important reason on earth. And when I was able to speak in front of a hundred people and draw them into a cause that was meaningful, that impacted their lives and impacted something we were doing collectively, it was just a new kind of confidence that went to all kinds of positive impacts. Isaac Tolpin found his gifts as a leader. He built the deepest and most powerful division in the history of vector marketing. Using carefully crafted, culture-driving statements, Isaac created a high-performance culture that led to achievements never seen before or since. Now, he's a speaker, consultant, entrepreneur, and father of eight children. Isaac understands leadership and influence at a level that few can match. And he offers specific insights in this conversation that can help you create a culture of growth and excellence in any circle that you influence, at work or at home. Strap on your seatbelts and get ready for a start to finish masterclass on leadership and influence from my friend, Isaac Tolpin. Welcome to Changing Lives, Selling Knives. I'm your host, Dan Cassetta. There's a generation of entrepreneurs and business leaders out there right now who are positively impacting the world using lessons and skills that they first learned from selling Cutco knives with Vector Marketing Corporation. This podcast was created to share inspiring stories from Cutco's most prominent alumni and current leaders. On this show, you'll meet successful entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, superstar business executives, and transformational leaders from many walks of life. All our guests will have two things in common. One, they're all changing lives today through their work and their influence. And two, they all started out selling Cutco knives when they were younger. The lessons of the Cutco Vector experience are numerous, are compelling, and are real-world concepts for business and life. Through hearing real-life stories and hands-on experiences, you'll gain insights that can help you in whatever it is that you do in life. Thanks for pressing play. Let's get on with today's episode. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. This is Dan Cassetta, Changing Lives, Selling Knives. And I'm really excited today to have Isaac Tolpin as my guest. Isaac was a longtime colleague of mine in the Western region of Vector Marketing and Cutco, dating all the way back to 1995 when he started while he was a student at the University of Washington. Isaac was the number one branch manager in the company for a summer while in college. Ultimately, after graduating from University of Washington, he became a district manager. He was the number one district manager in the company, setting a record that would stand for many years. He became the division manager for the Pacific Northwest, Oregon and Washington primarily. And Isaac built that division, the North Pacific Division, it was called, into a juggernaut sales organization in Cutco Vector, uh, became the all-time number one top producing division in the history of the company, set a record for annual division sales that still stands to this day. And after leaving Cutco and Vector, Isaac has 
been a part of several businesses that he has founded or supported. At this point, he's a co-founder along with his wife, Angie, of Courageous Parenting, which equips Christian parents with resources to impact their families. And Isaac is also a speaker and consultant. He is an expert in high-performance culture. And that's one of the things that we'll talk a lot about today. So Isaac, thank you so much for making time. Wow, Dan, it's so good to see you. And uh, what an introduction, man. This is fun. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. Like the old days, man. I know. know. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, let's let the audience know a little bit about how you wound up working in Vector and Cutco. So take us back to 1995 and how did this come together? Well, it's as simple as most people. They're going to college and you're looking for a way to make money and get experience. And the normal job route just didn't make sense to me. I think I've been wired as an entrepreneur and what a great start. So I started selling Cutco. And I'd never sold anything before other than some odds and ends, but never formally. And that was um, that was a formative experience, not just in selling, but learning leadership and speaking as well. And where were you living at the time? I was in Vancouver, Washington. And your original manager was? Brian Buck, a branch manager. A branch manager in Vancouver, Washington. Wow. But then yeah. when you went to school at UW you had a chance to work with the legendary Mark Lovis, right? Yeah, Mark was a very important mentor in my life. Uh, great man and a mutual friend of ours, right? Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Well, tell us about some of the experiences from your Cutco career that you feel like transformed your life and what were some of the key lessons that came out of those experiences? I think, you know, I'm really drawn to leadership, but I wasn't so much when I was younger. And one of the things that was we have to push ourselves to find out our gifts. Some gifts we just know, like when we're growing up. But sometimes if we don't push ourselves deep out of our comfort zones, we don't discover some of the gifts that can help us to have the most meaningful impact um, on the world or our families or our communities. And that for me was the ability to influence in front of groups of people, the ability to speak. And that really came out not all, actually, it didn't come out until I branched. I didn't mm-hmm. discover that until the branch summer. Right. Wow. Well, what was it like experiencing that transformation as a branch manager? It was life-giving for me. It was amazing because I always felt like I was to run a business of some sort. And I always felt like I was here for some important reason on earth. And I believe every single person is. But for me, I hadn't discovered some of those reasons yet. And when I was able to speak in front of 100 people and draw them into a cause that was meaningful, that impacted their lives and impacted something we were doing collectively, um, it was just a, a new kind of confidence that went to all kinds of positive impacts. Yeah. And you took that ability to influence that you gained as a branch manager, you took that on to become a district and division manager and had really immense success. What other experiences can you look back on during your management career that you feel like were real key moments? Yeah, I'm going to skip forward because the division manager thing was um, a pivotal experience. I did that for a lot of years as you did. And I I don't know if anybody's ever experienced this before. I'm pretty sure a lot of people are going to identify with this. Is I call it a spiritual ag- agitation, but it might just be an agitation. No matter how successful you are, I think we're wired to make progress. And although I was do- the division was doing about 5 million at the time, which in the Cutco environment is usually in the top three. 
So I think there was one year we even popped in number one, Dan, and I was number two or things like that. There's always someone else. And, and it wasn't about being number one. It was just about making progress. And I was very agitated. In fact, most people don't know this, but I thought about leaving the business. I thought, what else is there for me? And then what I realized was really powerful, which is I'm not to leave. I'm to grow. And I'd already grown a ton. I'd read 30 purposeful books the year before. We didn't grow the business. I thought, well, isn't that the recipe? If you grow, then business will grow. Well, sometimes it lags. And sometimes there's different things you need to apply. Learning knowledge is just something. Knowledge without implementation is almost useless. And so um, I really thought, okay, I'm the lid to this division. And if we need to grow, I need to change some things to grow this. And because of those changes that I inspired in other people and changes I made within myself, we went from five to 10 million when the economy was crashing 2008 through 2010. And I learned some fundamental things and I'll even share some of those about culture later today in this podcast. Yeah, that's great. I love what you said about you realized you were the lid to the division. Even while the division was having great success, Right, you recognized that it was up to you and your own level of growth to be able to help take it to another level. I think there's a lot of people listening to this podcast right now, both inside of Vector and outside of Vector, who are experiencing a level of success and they're pretty happy with their results. And with that happiness can come complacency. And with that complacency typically begins a downward spiral or that agitation you described develops over time. And I think it's so important for people to be constantly asking themselves, right? How can I continue to grow while maintaining the lifestyle I want, the schedule that I want, all the things that I've built up in my successful life? I owe it to the people that are around me to not be that lid, to be able to take that lid off and give people an environment where they can grow, which is exactly what you did. And when you grew, man, it was crazy. I've always told people like, we were lucky that we beat you in 2008 because we were never going to beat you again after that. <laughs> and uh, that was the only chance we ever had was that one year. Well, you, course, were, you crushed it after that and took it to a whole new level. You're always a motivating guy to be around, Dan, and back, back then, certainly. And I, wanna, I think a story is really relevant to this that'll be helpful to people is that I was uh, married at the time. At the time, I had four kids. My wife was on bed rest, so that is where she can't really do anything. And when you already have kids, that's a very difficult season. And I remember uh, sitting in this coffee shop, and I had this thought, how does 10 million happen? And that can be relevant to whatever you're doing. How does doubling your business happen would be the equivalent, okay? Mm -hmm. How does doubling my business happen, especially when that's never been done before in your environment or your industry, let's say? and um, and then what logically came to my mind and probably comes to a lot of people's minds is I'm going to have to work harder. Well, wait a minute. There's this tension of my wife needs me more than ever. And I feel this draw to doubling the business and figuring that out. And then what usually happens to people and did happen to me in the moment, it was, which is surrender to normalcy. Okay. That's not for me because this is more important my family. So I am going to be successful, but not the best, not to the potential, not to discover new ground, because that'll cause me to work too hard. Therefore, I'm going to be successful, push the chips in and take care of my family. 
But then something happened. This great book, which I think you've read, Good to Great, mm-hmm. um, is the tyranny of the or versus the genius of the and entered my mind. And I preach about this quote because it changed my thought process in that moment. I was like coaching myself. And I'm like, why wouldn't I have the best family life that ever existed and be the best father and husband, be the best leader where it matters most and take a business where it's never been done before and not work harder? Why can't I believe in the genius of the end? And so I did. And that's what happened. Yeah. I was literally thinking of Jim Collins and that as you were describing <laughs> the story. And, you know, uh, it's such a great concept to think about is the genius of the and. So many people succumb to the tyranny of the or and they feel like, you know, you can only have this one side of success. Whereas the great leaders like you are the ones that are able to figure out how to have all the sides of success that you want to be able to have. So, with this North Pacific division that you have, you grew, you went from 5 million to 7 million to 10 million in you know, very short order, and then took it even higher after that over the coming years to 11 and maybe even 12 million with uh, all of the offices that you had, including some that moved outside of your division. And uh, you built an uh, organization that, as I said earlier, hasn't been equaled in all the years since that time. And so I think that you are as qualified as anyone to talk about building a high performance culture. And so let's get into that topic here. And I think uh, our audience has a lot of great stuff in store for them here in the next few minutes. Let's start by talking about what is culture in your view? And, and why do you think this is a concept that is sort of nebulous for many leaders? Oh, it's a great question. It's we all know culture is important. We hear talks about it. We may have even written, written read books about it, but it seems to many leaders, and I know it did to me at this time until I really shifted, to be something that's not tangible. It's hard to grab onto and it's hard to keep a culture. Well, a culture always exists. It's either getting better or worse. Okay. Uh, whether you're driving one or not, a culture exists. It's just probably bad if you're not driving one. And a culture is the ethos. It's the behavior when no one's looking. It's the unwritten rules. It's the what actually is and exists. It's not what a company puts on their mission statement. It's not those things. It's what is real. Now, what's the best scenario is when the mission statement and the values of the company match what's real, but that's rare and unusual. You think of companies like Zappos where that's more real. You think of companies like Apple, think different is is what I would call their crucible statement. Uh, that ripples through their company to create a certain culture that drives performance and great products. But um, that's that's a, a definition and it's nebulous just because you know people talk about something and they stop talking about it. I've said in front of a room before, raise your hand to a bunch of leaders. If you have carefully crafted and thought about a key statement or something that was really important to say uh, that you knew was going to make a difference in your business and never stopped saying it every opportunity you possibly could, for an entire year, and almost always nobody raises their hand. What happens is, as leaders, we want feedback. And there's certain things as leaders that we need to decide and never stop whether we get any feedback or not. There's some things, a lot of things we need to get feedback on. But when it comes to driving culture, it is not something once you launch it that you need feedback on. And unfortunately, how many times do leaders start talking about one thing for a few months? And then there's talk about something else for a few months. 
and it's an ever-changing focus, whereas they never get the favor of momentum. Mm. You know, you talked about the idea of communicating a statement that you drive and that you continue to promote and talk about. And this is something that I really remember with you. And, you know, before we get into a lot of the nitty gritty of creating and driving high performance and high performance culture, just this idea of a statement that you drive is a critical point. And it's got me thinking about my own organization and thinking about like, I don't really know that we have a clear statement that is driven all the time. And for you, it was choose growth, right? Choose growth was the mantra of the North Pacific division. And I think that that concept permeated every decision that people made in your organization as they were progressing through their work days, you know, or striving for whatever goals that they were striving for. Choose growth. And of course, there were things beneath that that you talked about, but that was the mantra. Let's talk a little bit about that concept. And, you know, how do you craft a culture driving statement that's going to be something that inspires your entire team for a long period of time? Yeah, no, it, it totally was. And there's a lot behind that. And we'll, uh, and I'll go into that. But the thought of this, and I'll answer the question is, I remember thinking, how can I raise the floor everybody's standing on? Because I'm sure pe- anybody that leads people will relate to this. You get a couple of people over here performing at a high level, and then the people you're working with before kind of drop down. And it, they, t- they change roles any given year, campaign, or whatever you call things. And what if you could just get the whole floor to raise? Where, yeah, that still happens, but everybody's success is greater. And so when it was about me and me working directly with people or about the speech I give or these kinds of things or meetings I run, it was, I couldn't raise the floor. But culture raises the floor. And if you instill it right with a key statement that you're talking about, then every time you say that, when nobody's looking, people make more of the right decisions. When nobody's looking, people decide to try a little harder. They, you know, you'd be shocked. And I know you know this, Dan, but you'd be shocked if you were like a little angel on the shoulder of your people, whoever your people are that you lead, and you could actually see what they do. Now, seeing is one thing. You'd be shocked at how rudimentary and basic, the most basic things don't happen sometimes. But now your culture gives that little angel a voice. Mm. It's like whispering in everybody's ears on a constant basis when they decide to do this or this. So the question you said is, how do you develop the key statement? The problem a lot of people do, first of all, is they think of something clever that their team will like. The problem with that is you will never talk about what you don't possess within you. So the first thing you have to do is think about who am I and what am I about? Because if you drive anything different than what you're about as a leader, you will never stay the course in driving it forward and you'll lack the authenticity to deliver it the right way. Mm -hmm. So that is huge. Yeah, no doubt. Really doing some introspection to think about, you know, who are you about, you know, what are you about as a leader is the key first step to being able to come up with something that you're going to be able to drive with your organization. What else goes into the aspects of communication that helps to, you know, foster this into the bloodstream of all of your people? Yeah. So the next key is that you have to think about what are the key result areas in my business? 
what actually makes a difference? Because if we're talking about behavior, what do we want behavior to impact? If you want your business to grow, you want it to impact the things that make the business work. So I would just encourage anybody listening, take a notepad out, whiteboard it, write a list of the key levers of your business, write as many as you possibly can. And I did this process. I, was, I thought through this. It was very carefully done. Thought through this process. So what are the key levers? And then I distilled it down to our key result areas. What are the four to seven levers that impact as many of those key result areas as possible? And the reason four to seven is because, and I could even say three to seven, a leader can never effectively communicate about more than four to seven things. And when you distill down the levers, now what is a lever? Well, we all know what a lever is. It's something you pull that has a much bigger impact than your strength because you pulled it. Mm -hmm. And so what you're looking for is a catalyst that you can bring meaning to, a statement you can bring meaning to that they understand and it impacts maybe four different areas of your business. I'll give you an example, Dan. So I have it written down here. Uh, Back then, uh, the Norpac division, I we were the most geographically spread out division probably in the company or one of them. And it was really hard to get anybody to care about the organization beyond their, their own organization, about the division, and to be an actual team. And it wasn't going to be because I run more meetings. If anything, I was going to run less meetings because I had to tend to my wife. And so what I had to think about is what is something, and there's a lot of key result areas, at least in that business, when people care beyond their own office. There's a lot of things that impacts and impacts leadership development, which is a huge key to that business. Okay. And so what I did is I just carefully crafted the next step is you figure out a culture driving statement that drives that lever that impacts many key result areas. And the the, the one for that, which is the geographically spread out and it's hard to get people to care, is the statement, multiple leaders proactively leading. And it's not a nice statement. It's kind of normal. It's kind of just four words, <laughs> maybe too many words. But you know what? Every single conference call, every time I was in front of them, every time I was talking to one of them, hey, remember, we're multiple leaders proactively leading. And here's a thing that I knew but didn't practice fully until I had this epiphany, which is leaders forget how powerful their words are. And you start to impact the subconscious and the conscious mind when you say the same thing over and over again over a long period of time. It's like advertising. It's Mm -hmm. amazing. Wow. That was good, Isaac. I really appreciate that. It would be really helpful for people to think about that, this idea of what are the key levers that they can be pulling in their organization that can have that compounded effect, like you said, that is stronger than them. Let's get into some of the other thoughts you have on just what creates a culture that increases performance, that increases results. Because that's ultimately what I think everybody wants in their business is that their business is growing and is producing more and more each year. And you were able to do that you know, at a really a rapid clip and that continued for as long as you were with the company. And so let's talk a little bit about how you do that. How do you create a culture that increases performance? 
So the first thing is, I mean, we talked about some of these keys and we'll talk a little more about them, but you have to be committed to your culture driving statements. And once you decide what they are, you're committing to communicating it nonstop into affinity. You might minorly adjust them. So they have to be your words. They have to be in your words. They have to be sound like you. They have to embody who you are and what you're about, like I said. And with the biggest pitfall people do is they come up with something clever and excited about it. And like I said, they just stop talking about it after a while. They mm-hmm. aren't truly committed to it. The other thing is you have to bring meaning to it. Choose growth sounded so corny when we first when I first thought of it. And I had to run it by one person. So I had Kevin Albert come by because I knew he would be honest with me. And I said, what do you think about choose growth? Okay. I just told you something you should never do, by the way. I almost made a mistake right there because as soon as you ask somebody's opinion about it, that could sway you. And I never asked another person's opinion about choose growth from that day forward because I realized now he gave me positive feedback on it. But he, but what I realized is that was dangerous. As leaders, if we want positive feedback, no. Is it, does it embody who you are? Are you committed to driving it? And does it trickle down and affect all the levers of the business? So I think of choose growth, by the way. So after you get your levers, then you have your, you write your key statements, one for every lever. I want to make sure that's clear. So I had seven of them. And then you need your crucible statement. And what a crucible statement, a crucible, first of all, is that big uh, that pot or hand that uh, molten metal goes in and it purifies the metal. It gets all the impurities out. And so I call it a crucible statement because it's the most purest, clearest statement and embodies everything you've talked about. And so when I looked at this, I'm like, what is the thing that is going to drive these key, all the key levers of the business that's going to remind them of all of the key statements I constantly say? when nobody's around them and they have to manage themselves. Isn't that, aren't we our worst enemy? It's us managing ourselves when no one's looking. It's not that someone's, not usually that someone's smarter, brighter, more talented necessarily sometimes, but a lot of times it's just that we can't get ourselves to do what we don't feel like doing. And so your crucible statement drives it. So Apple computer, it's think different. That is their crucible statement. And you better believe it inside of Apple that means more than just the outside when you see things different. There's all kinds of things that that means to the employees there. And when I said choose growth, all of these memories of me ending conference calls, multiple leaders proactively leading to always be leading was another one. I had a challenge. Here's another example. I had a challenge with leaders being the example. They were young people with big responsibility. I had a real challenge of them being professional and being attractive and showing that there's a long-term opportunity here to other people by their example. And so what was a key statement then I could say if I, what was the big challenge, a key, a key lever, a key result area was I need more candidates. See, one of the challenges I always faced and one of the reasons Norpac went so well is that there was always a couple territories open and it was hard to fill the territories. Once I'd fill one, then I'd lose another one. And so I have a certain number of characters. Anybody in sales probably deals with this. And we shifted it to where everything was always full and there's people waiting. 
And that put a whole higher standard and different pressure on it. Mm-hmm. How did that happen? Well, I started just saying, always be leading. Why would that work? Because see, if I would have told them, sometimes they're a little different. If I would have told them that you need to be professional, I don't think it would have worked. If I would have told them, you need to be the example, I don't think that would have worked. But I use something, always be leading. We in NORPAC, we're always leading, always be leading. It worked. It's because it accomplishes all these other things that they don't even need to think about. If they just always were leading, if they don't start telling about the story where they killed the rabbit, then we're in good shape. I feel like always be leading is a great mantra for parenting as well (laughs) as for Vector. You know, like I'm just thinking about how to get kids to want to set a good example. Like my littlest one imitates the older one all the time, right? Oh, yeah. Gosh, it's like so critical to get the older one to make sure that they're leading, right? Setting a good example. and, And that is so good. You know, one of the things that also struck me as you were sharing some of your thoughts just now is the importance of repetition, repetition of ideas, right? Because the first time somebody hears something, they hear it, they might not even register. The second time, maybe they notice it now. They actually notice it for the first time. And then the third time, it begins to get a little bit more into their head. And then the fourth and fifth time, maybe they actually start to act on it a little bit. But it doesn't get internalized, right? The key to having good ideas be implemented is the concept of internalization. It has to become a part of who someone is. And that doesn't just happen through saying something once or twice or even five times. So it true. happens through tons of repetition over a long period oh. of time that indoctrinates yeah. people into a certain way of thinking that's, you know, to their best interest. Well, think about it. Like if, you know, if you prepare a speech for your team or you're having a staff meeting or you're, you're on a conference call running it and you're always thinking of something different to say, it's okay. Variety sometimes can be good too. But really leadership is about that repetition woven into purpose that drives the areas of the business that matter. Because we could say it's all about people. Well, business is all about people. But really, how do you retain people? It's not just about hugs. It's not just about recognizing people. That's Relationship is very important, don't get me wrong. But it has to be backed up by success, by people getting results. And for sure, part of your culture should be the relational aspect because that's incredibly important and tied together Mm -hmm. but you should really distill down like what actually makes this work that a lot of times naturally when people are successful that relational social stuff just gets better anyways so but if you make just that the biggest focus and don't pay attention to your key result areas of your business oh we have the most fun here okay Is that really, I think that we can have the most fun when we're celebrating because we deserve it. Right. Totally. I feel like that is an area I could improve upon just in listening to you describe it. Maybe a mistake that I've made is, you know, focusing on the um, relational aspect of the business with some of my key people and focusing on some of the personal growth aspects of developing people, but without really having a hard focus on those key results areas. And that's something that I think I could bring a little bit better attention to in my own organization. What are some of the mistakes that you notice that 
you know, leaders make? Oh, and I've made these mistakes, Dan, <laughs> which is, which is pride. First of all, um, it's pride before the fall. It's thinking you are too good for certain things. It's the idea that your identity is wrapped up in some kind of number that your business has. Um, I think that that's a dangerous path that leads to people becoming disengaged at some point. I think that a better um, approach to business is what is the significance. I've always said pursue significance, not just mere success. Significance is the idea of doing something worthy that has a meaningful impact beyond just how it fills my pocketbook. And I think that when you really have that, that's a big deal. The opposite of that is selfishness, greed, pride, doing everything for my own reasons. I think selfishness is the ruin of marriage. It's the ruin of parenting. It's the ruin of leadership and business. It's leadership everywhere. Is And by the way, nobody can say they're not selfish because we all have an element of selfishness, but it's the battle of that for something better in our minds and in the moment to keep our focus on others. By the way, the most miserable people are the ones that think about themselves all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Just that idea of selfishness being one of the key mistakes that people make, but that it's something that's inherent in all of us and that we have to be able to battle against it. You know, Jim Rohn has a concept that he calls enlightened self-interest which is acknowledging that, look, we're all self-interested. I mean, at heart, we're all doing what we're doing so that we can have the life we want to have and mm-hmm. you know, the income we want to have and the, sure. the goals we want to achieve and all that stuff. But that realizing that the way to get that is by investing in others and helping uplift as many others as possible. And that's what eventually circles back to give us more of what we want. And so, yeah, I think it's important to develop that quality. Here's one situation just to tag onto that, which is, who needs the credit? Do you need the credit? Or are you excited about other people getting the credit, even when you had a big part in it? See, if you're excited about other people getting the credit, that is a huge shift. And you might be saying, of course, I'm that way. Okay, well, audit yourself in the next seven days. Mm-hmm. Really do it. Yeah, that's a good one for people to stew on and think about. <laughs> Because I'd like to think that I feel great about other people getting credit, but I also feel really good when somebody says, you know, hey, nice job. Me too. What other mistakes do you notice? I think people sacrifice their potential for really good things and they don't have to. And that was part of the story today. I think that um, if you don't give your best in all areas of your business, you literally don't feel as good as you could and you're not having the impact you really could. Another thing is um, I literally just took my business skills and leadership skills and brought them into my family. I think they should. So anybody that's families, they should be, it should be an integrated life. Whereas a lot of people compartmentalize. And so, yeah, you might be leading well here. You're asking the receptionist, how was her day? You're talking to your leaders over here. You're, you're being your best version of yourself over here. And then you drive home. And then you're like a zombie to your spouse and your kids want your attention and they're loud. And you're like, I just need to unwind. You know, (laughs) and this is a reality. Everybody's probably lived at one point, including myself. And what I've just registered, I'm like, why would I give my family 
the worst and these people over here the best? Why can't I give everybody the best and make sure I'm taking my care of myself so that I'm energized to do so? And I think that we have become accustomed to take for granted those we love the most. But you know what? This is the end. This has really hit me. Maybe it's why I have eight kids now. But it really <laughs> hit me is that, wait a minute, I'm having impact on thousands and thousands of people over here and really good impact. And that I keep hearing stories of that impact today. You know, Peter Vug reaches out to me and thanks me or something like that. You know, he's a best-selling author and, you know, it, it feels good. I love that because that was the purpose with, to impact people. But um, I realized there's this guy, Jonathan Edwards. He's, he's a Puritan from like the 1600s, I think. I like old guys. And he, um, his lineage, they tracked it of his kids and their kids and so forth, generations deep, how impactful they were. And they compared it to this guy named Max Jukes, who was like a villain. And then they tracked all his descendants as well. And just completely different, complete fruitfulness, like a VP of the United States of America to college professors on this side, to pastors, to medical, to just writers, authors, you know, all these incredible people. And over here, it's like, you know, prison, 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 prison. (laughs) And I remember reading that and I'm like, whoa, what am I doing? I'm giving my best over here. When if I pour in at the time, these four human beings that I get to disciple and indoctrinate, because I'm using your word, for 18 years, and then they're going to have families and they're going to have families. I started doing the math. That is far more effective. Why would I be hurting that? Wow. Such a good thing to think about for so many people. And yeah, I guess that is why you have you have eight kids now. It's no longer four; it's eight now, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, That's awesome. What, what's that like having eight kids? You know, I but first of all, I never thought I'd have a huge family. I don't come from big families, and neither of us do. Uh, this is a new thing in our realm. Um, but it it is incredible because you know what? I used to. I don't know those that have kids. They first people tell you, "Oh, the two when they're two, it's just gonna be the worst, terrible twos," and then they go. Oh, you know, oh, wait until high school. Oh, it's going to be a nightmare. <laughs> oh, how are you going to afford all of them going to college? You know, and all this negative stuff. And, you know, one of the things about Vector is I was a very positive person. So whenever these people would come to me with this negativity, I'm like, that's not going to be my reality. No, I don't subscribe to that. <laughs> and so literally we have parented in a way that I do think is more unique than the normal um, that we love hanging out with our teenagers. The teenagers are the best. They're incredible. You know, when my daughter, my oldest daughter, Kelsey, she's in college at Liberty university now in her second year cranking by the way. And she was homeschooled all the way through and she just cranking. And she uh, at age nine could cook for the whole family and loved it. So at age eight, Austin, we had a vineyard in Portland, you remember, Dan. And at age eight, Austin was on the Kubota tractor mowing four acres and even in between the vines and not hitting the vines. Um, so, you know, kids, we're on kids real quick, but kids rise and people in your work that you lead, they rise to the level of responsibility you give them. And one other tip I want to give you for your kids and for your lead is that respect. A lot of people only want to give respect when people deserve respect. 
what I learned early on is that if you give respect before it's deserved, people rise to the level of respect you give them. Mm. See, it's counterintuitive, this stuff. The intuitive, the selfish person wants to do the normal route, which is not, I'm going to give you respect when you deserve it. You need to earn my respect. I'm going to give it to you when you deserve it. When I was a NORPAC leader, give respect. Bring meaning to their role. Bring new possibility to their identity. So they rise to it versus waiting for them to rise to your expectations. It's just a bit different. It's a little tweak that in parenting has been transformational, but I learned it in business first. Yeah, wow. Great stuff there, Isaac. That was really, really compelling. Tell us uh, what you're doing now. And uh, in particular, Isaac, how do you aspire to change people's lives in the years ahead? Yeah, I've always had a vision uh, and it's changed over the years, which I think is healthy and good based on what God has you doing or what you're doing. Um, now there's two things I'm doing. IsaacTolpin.com is my speaking and consulting site. By the way, you can get a free uh, six videos, uh, more details about creating culture there for free. There's no strings attached. Just boom, right there on IsaacTolpin.com. Awesome. And then the and then the bigger impact, believe it or not, is CourageousParenting.com and Resolute Man. Um, I'm Resolute Man on social media. CourageousParenting.com. Our mission is to impact one million families and their legacies, which is about 300 million people if we accomplish it. It won't be accomplished, you know, in my lifetime, but it's something that I think, I think if you fix parenting, uh, you can fix a lot of the problems in the world at a grassroots level. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. I think that's such a key source of all of the good that can happen is if it started with the families, just makes such a big difference on everyone. And you know, there's all this talk about trying to have teachers impact kids. And of course, you know, that's a big, important idea. But teachers only have the kids for 30 or 35% of the time. And, you know, parents are the ones that have them for the rest of the time and have uh, the most powerful impact. So I really respect what you are trying to do there with your influence, Isaac. Is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience? Just want to give you a last few minutes here if you feel like anything else is on top of your mind that you'd want to share. Yeah, uh, feel free to listen to the podcast, uh, uh, Courageous Parenting on iTunes, wherever you listen. But last thoughts are, I think a lot of people settle and they're focused to so narrowly that they don't see the greater impact they could have. And my encouragement to anybody is to really do some reflection and think about, hey, am I using my gifts, my talents, and who I am in the best possible way to have the biggest impact I can have? on other human beings? Or am I thinking about and perusing social media and the internet about the best car, the best house, and the, everything the best I can develop for just myself? And by the way, I love nice things and I think nice things are a good thing. But I think that people tend to get nice things when they put other people first and they have an enduring, meaningful impact. And when you're old and you're bouncing your grandkids on your knee and you're looking back, you want to be able to go, oh, I'm so glad I made a, a meaningful difference on people in this world. We all know, I don't think we're going to be bouncing our grandkid on the knee and going, I'm so glad I have 50 million in the bank and there's only five years left to live. So it's not that the 50 million is a bad thing. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. 
that can be used as a resource for many things. But if it was, if it was at the sacrifice of meaningful impact with people, then I think there would be regrets. Hey, if you can get both, fantastic. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Isaac, I was always so inspired by you as a friend and colleague in the Western region here for all those years and equally inspired today just sitting here having a conversation with you. So it's always fantastic, man. I really respect you and appreciate that you've taken some time to share here with the uh, Vector Cutco audience today. So thanks so much. Oh, so great to be here, Dan. And you've always been an inspiration in my life. I appreciate you. I trust that uh, most of you listening were as wowed as I was by that conversation with Isaac Tolpin. So many great nuggets, starting out with the idea of pushing to find out our gifts, right? We have a great chance to do that if we're a part of Vector Marketing and Cutco because there are opportunities where you can take on more responsibility. For Isaac, it was running a branch office and the value that came from that. Of course, I love the phrase from Jim Collins, good to great, the tyranny of the or versus the genius of the and. And when you consider the opportunities ahead of you, thinking about them in terms of how can I have this and this, the lifestyle I want and the business that I want, the team around me that I want to have and be able to have the schedule that I want to be leading. It's possible to be able to create that in our lives. Culture always exists, Isaac said. It's what actually is the behavior when no one's looking. And I think it's so important for people listening to this podcast to think about what actually is right now in your organization, what actually exists, because that is your culture right now. And transforming it begins with confronting what is reality. Of course, Isaac talked about culture driving statements. Does it embody who you are? Are you committed to driving it? And does it impact the levers that you want to pull in your business? The importance of repetition of those culture driving statements. And then understanding what are the key results areas and the four to seven key levers of your business. Isaac is going to submit to me a list of the key levers for the North Pacific division that he created. And we'll put those in the show notes so you can check those out on changinglivespodcast.com. I love where Isaac said, give respect to everyone even before it's earned. We bring new possibility to people's identity when we treat them as they can be. And of course, at the end, Isaac posed a great question, which is, am I using my gifts for maximum impact? Are you? I hope hearing the words of wisdom from Isaac Tolpin will help everyone listening to the podcast to use their gifts for more and greater impact in the years ahead. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode of Changing Lives, Selling Knives, hit the subscribe button so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. And if you want access to today's show notes, including links to any resources mentioned, visit changinglivespodcast.com. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. I'll catch you back here in a few days 
for our next story about changing lives.